Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In 40% of presidential elections in this century, the Electoral College selected a candidate who lost the popular vote. This institution results in mostly white, rural voters having votes which count much, much more than voters of color in more populous locations. I've asked Jesse Wegman on today to discuss the Electoral College and efforts to mitigate it today. Jesse is a New York Times editorial board member and the author of Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. Trump carried at least 279 electoral college votes to Clinton's 218, although Trump appears to have narrowly lost the popular vote. Abolishing the electoral college? That's cheap talk, because to abolish the electoral college uh, requires an amendment to the Constitution. That requires at least two-thirds of Congress or a convention. And um, both of those seem like not real power. We can have national voting and that means get rid of the Electoral College. Do you think the Electoral College should be abolished? I said that in 2000, after what happened to uh, the 2000 election with Al Gore. We've moved towards one person, one vote. That's how we select winners. I would rather see it where you went with simple votes. You know, you get 100 million votes and somebody else gets 90 million votes in you. Remember, I did win more than 3 million votes than my opponent. So it's like... Really? Hi, my name is Jesse Wegman. I'm a member of the New York Times editorial board, and I'm working to elect the president by a national popular vote. Sorry, not sorry. All right. So I want to talk about the Electoral College, but before we get started there, I want to talk to you for a second about your work at the New York Times, what it's like to work for a media outlet that is constantly under attack by the president of the United States, and what are really the risks to our democracy when the government works so hard to undermine trust in the media? It's a great question, and it's obviously something that we have struggled with now for the last four or five years as Trump has risen in national prominence and now runs the country. Trump used some of his speech to take aim at the author of the anonymous op-ed published in the New York Times. That's the article reportedly written by a senior member of the Trump administration, someone who claims they are working from within to protect the country from the president himself. The latest 
active resistance is the op-ed published in the failing New York Times by an anomalous, really an anomalous, gutless coward. You just look. He was, uh, nobody knows who the hell he is or she, although they put he, but probably that's a little disguised. That means it's she. But for the sake of our national security, the New York Times should publish his name at once. I think their reporters should go and investigate who it is. That would actually be a good scoop. When I started at the Times, Barack Obama had just begun his second term. And so our concerns about our relationship to the federal government and to the state governments, they were very different concerns then. It all feels very quaint now, now that we're being attacked by an authoritarian narcissist. So we've learned to take it in stride because we know that we have very robust protections, both under the First Amendment and American culture generally is very tolerant of strong criticism of its political leaders. But, you know, it's It's actually been frightening to see how many people, supporters of President Trump, would be fine with the kinds of restrictions that we see in authoritarian countries or even fascist countries. And I just think that's something that I hadn't fully grasped before, the sheer number of Americans who don't seem troubled by that kind of a leader. And it does keep me up at night. (laughs) And I will continue to do my job. We'll continue to speak the truth from the editorial page. The newsroom will continue to do its reporting and I think uncover all the sorts of stories that you are used to seeing. And I think that's true for news organizations around the country. But as long as Donald Trump remains in office, I do think it's going to be a pretty serious threat to the future of a free system of news and journalism. You bring up an interesting question, and I'm sure you've thought about the answer. Even if it's just a philosophical answer, I'd love to know why you think there are so many Americans that are on board with the way in which he treats the media. That's a really tough question, and I don't think I know the answer. I am sure that some of it has to do with a lot of Americans losing trust in institutions, not just in the media, but also obviously in government and in business and and all kinds of institutions that I think people used to have more trust in. As that trust breaks down, people are very more susceptible, I think, to being taken in by, I'll say, con men like Donald Trump. Then you also have this element where I think people generally are just more liable to be open to authoritarian authoritarian leaders and authoritarian mindsets. And I think that's always been a struggle for democracy. I think democracy itself is a very fragile and vulnerable idea, right? The idea of self-government. And it's something that the founders knew when they first established a country back in the late 18th century. They realized that most of the world history was not anything like this. And even today, democracy is still a relatively fragile practice. So we always have to be on guard against these other elements pushing back against our attempt to govern ourselves, govern ourselves with freedom and with equality for all. But I think that we're seeing right now how thin the veneer of a democratic civilization is. I wonder if it's just something as simple as marketing catchphrases. Like he just drills the fake news or the lamestream media or these little hooks. He drills them over and over. And he has since he was campaigning. And I'm just wondering if that repetition has almost become like a mantra, like how those that are spiritual say the same thing over and over in their head to make it into fruition. Like maybe it's just something that simple. Absolutely. Where people are just hearing it over and over and over. And they're like, yeah, right. They don't know why they're feeling that way, but someone keeps telling them to feel that way. Donald Trump is a very savvy operator. He's good at one thing, which is basically convincing people that he knows best and that he's smart and that he's a good negotiator and that he's strong. And obviously all these things are manifestly untrue when you 
look at the facts and when you look at how he actually operates in the world. But he is an incredible operator in that regard. And I think you're right. The repetition is a huge part of it. And he knows this, right? He's been saying the same phrases for years now. And they really just catch into people's minds. You know, you read the work of people like George Lakoff, who talk about the power of language to direct people's political sentiments. And obviously, George Orwell wrote about it decades ago. And it's something that leaders and particularly autocratic leaders like Trump have learned to wield with terrifying degree of effectiveness. But I think that's absolutely correct that the repetition is as effective as anything. So I asked about Trump because he's one of the two presidents this century who took office despite losing the popular vote. So I'm wondering if you could give my listeners just a quick history of the Electoral College, why it was enacted, and why we still have it. Sure. What's interesting, in writing this book, I learned a lot that I hadn't known myself, which was a little embarrassing. I feel like I should be someone who does know more about this. You know, I went to law school, I've studied the law, I've studied American history, and I didn't know as much as I thought about how the Electoral College works. And I think that's probably true for most Americans. It was adopted by a small group of men, the framers of our Constitution in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, because they were looking for a way to choose a national leader. They didn't have a national leader at that point. There was no position of president before they met to create the Constitution. There was the Articles of Confederation, which was sort of a treaty among the original states, but there was no powerful federal government. There was no way to resolve disputes between the states. And it was clear that they needed an executive, sort of a strong and overseeing executive. And so the question was, how do you choose that person? And this was the hardest question they faced at the convention. They say this afterward. They say, no question gave us as much trouble as this. And they started debating it at the very beginning in June, and they didn't finish until early September. The system they adopted, which is the Electoral College, we call it the Electoral College. They didn't call it that. It's a system whereby electors, presidential electors are chosen within each state, and they represent the number of Congress members and senators that each state has. The founding fathers thought that it would be too chaotic and prone to error, and instead designed the Electoral College system. Here's how it works. Each U.S. state gets a different number of electors, equal to the number of that state's U.S. senators, always two, plus its number of U.S. representatives, determined by the size of the state's population. So in California, for example, you have 53 members of Congress and you have two senators. So California gets 55 electoral votes. You add all of those up in the country and you have 538 electoral votes and you need 270 to win. So a candidate wins 270 of electoral votes or more, that candidate becomes president regardless of what happens in the popular vote. As you say, twice in the last five elections since 2000, the candidate who won the most votes in the country did not win the Electoral College. And I think people were really shocked by that the first time it happened. I think most people weren't even aware that that was how our system worked. Nobody alive in 2000 had been around the last time that that had happened, which was 1888, 112 years earlier. And so it was a real body blow to the system and to the American people as Mm. they came to understand that What they thought was the way we elected the president wasn't, in fact, the way we elected the president. So the system that the framers adopted, I don't think they really thought about it going against a popular vote, but it broke down almost immediately after the Constitution was adopted. And it's never really operated the way that they thought it would. So I think that's really a big part of this. So what do you say to people who argue that abolishing the Electoral College would give all the power to large coastal states and basically take it away from rural states like North Dakota? 
It's funny, you know, that's one of the most common myths about the Electoral College and the popular vote. And I address that and several others in a couple chapters near the end of the book, where I take on the oldest and most persistent myths about the college. The idea that the college would benefit big states at the expense of small states is really, I think, just a misunderstanding both of how big big states are, which is not as big as people think relative to the size of the country, but it's also a misunderstanding of how the Electoral College actually operates today. The way it operates is under what we call the winner-take-all rule. And I'm sure you've heard of this. It's the rule by which states award all of their electors to the winner of the statewide popular vote, right? No matter how close that vote is, the candidate who wins the most votes gets all of that state's electors. So use Florida in 2000 as a great example. In 2000, millions of popular votes are cast in Florida. George W. Bush wins 537 more than Al Gore but he gets all 25 of Florida's electoral votes, Al Gore gets zero. So that creates an incredible distortion between the electoral college and the outcome of the popular vote, which I think most of us think of as expressing the true will of the people. And when you have that system, this winner-take-all system, the other effect it has is that it creates what we think of as safe states and battleground states. Look at that map that we all obsess over every four years, that red and blue map, and which states are red and which states are blue. That's a completely meaningless map. It is purely an artifact of this winner-take-all system, right? No state is red or blue. States are all purple. They're filled with Democrats and Republicans and people who support other parties. So in your state, in California, a lot of people may not realize this, four and a half million people in California voted for Donald Trump in 2016. That's a huge number of people. That's that's huge. (laughs) And they were completely erased when the Electoral College votes for the president because California gave all of its electors to the Democrat, Hillary Clinton. That happens across the country. It really corrodes representative democracy when you're basically erasing tens of millions of American voters. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When I think about this presidential election, it just infuriates me that votes only matter in a handful of states. Exactly. Is this what the framers intended? Not at all. In fact, the winner-take-all rule started to be adopted by the states in the first decades of the country's history. And in fact, James Madison, who is widely regarded as the father of the Constitution and lived longer than any other framer, started to see winner-take-all get adopted in the states. And he was horrified. He's like, this isn't the system that we anticipated being used. He wanted to amend the Constitution to prohibit winner-take-all and to require states to use a different system. I think he would have prefer the system by congressional district, which has its own problems that we can talk about. But the bottom line is he understood how harmful winner-take-all is. And you pinpointed really the central problem with the winner-take-all rule, which is that it makes 40 to 45 states every four years completely irrelevant to the outcome of the election. You know, come a general election, 
Presidential candidates don't come to places like Mississippi. Yeah, they also don't come to places like California and Massachusetts, right? Because we're not the battleground states. Well, my view is that every vote matters. And the way we can make that happen... is that we can have national voting, and that means get rid of the electoral college and everybody. It makes only that small number of battleground states, this year it's going to be maybe six, relevant. And that means the candidates of both parties focus all of their attention, spend all of their money in just those states and even just in slivers of those states. And that means that only a small number of Americans actually matter to the outcome of an election for an office that's supposed to cover the whole country. But also when you think about laying the groundwork for candidates in the future. It just seems like such a nearsighted way of looking at campaigning, looking at running the DNC and the GOP. Like we have to lay the groundwork even in these red states. And I think we've seen people like Stacey Abrams, who is like, you know what? I know a Democrat hasn't won in this district for however long, but I'm going to knock on as many doors as humanly possible and lay the groundwork. Not only does that enable you to have a voice, but also to collect data alone. It feels like that would be an important thing to do. You know, this is a really great point. And in my last chapter, chapter nine of the book, I speak to several dozen campaign managers and field directors of presidential campaigns for the last 20 years on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. And I asked them two questions. I said, how did you try to win the election under the Electoral College rules? And how would you have tried to win had it been a different system, you know, national popular vote? And almost to a person, they all would have preferred running a national popular vote campaign. And that's because they understand exactly what you're talking about, which is when candidates have to zero in on just a few voters in Michigan or Florida or Ohio or Wisconsin or whichever the swing states happen to be that year, it's really destructive to the idea of representative democracy. This is the person who is supposed to be president of the United States, not president of the battleground states, not president of Michigan and Florida and Wisconsin. And that's really the distorting factor that I think really, really harms our politics, harms our policies, and harms the ideas that Americans have about each other, right? It makes people think that they are more different from each other than they actually are. You know, large majorities of Americans support a lot of policies that a president who was forced to campaign to win a majority of American voters would probably push through. But right now we have a president who's very interested in protecting his shrinking base to the exclusion of everyone else. And I think that's a recipe for disaster. You wrote an op-ed about two cases before the Supreme Court this spring, which could impact how the Electoral College operates. Can you tell us a little bit about those cases and why they matter? Sure. They're fascinating cases. These are the cases involving what we call faithless electors. And faithless electors really gets to the heart of what a lot of people misunderstand about how the Electoral College works. So when the founders created the Electoral College, you know, we have the Federalist Papers, which was basically propaganda written after the Constitution was drafted. And while states were ratifying it, it was selling the Constitution to the states to try to get them to ratify it, New York in particular. And Alexander Hamilton writes this famous Federalist Papers, number 68, in which he explains what he calls the excellence of the Electoral College and how well designed it is and how it will be guaranteed to select the best 
possible candidate for the office, that these sort of men of distinction will sit down and deliberate and make their choice in the best interest of the country. That's what he said, right? It's never actually operated that way. Within two elections, when George Washington stopped being president, he decided not to run for a third term, national political parties were rising at that moment, and suddenly everything had become partisanized. So what you used to think of as choosing somebody who was just going to govern the country well and be a kind of conscientious and expansive leader becomes a fight between two parties. And the electors start treating it that way. So electors who you thought were being chosen to be these careful, deliberative, independent thinkers were really now just partisan hacks. That's how it was in 1796, which is only nine years after the Constitutional Convention. And that's how it is today in 2020. So when we talk about faithless electors, What faithless electors are, for anyone who doesn't know, is these are electors who cast their electoral ballot for somebody who is not the party's candidate that they agreed to vote for. So a Democratic elector, say, who refuses to vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016, or a Republican elector who refuses to vote for Donald Trump. Now, in reality, there are virtually no faithless electors in the country. It just doesn't happen. It's happened a handful of times in history. It's never affected the outcome of the race. And that's because these electors want to vote for the candidate they've pledged to vote for. That's why they do this job. The Supreme Court is considering these two cases, which are about whether a state can punish or even replace an elector for not voting for the person that they agreed to vote for. I think, however the court rules in that case, and I could actually see this ruling going either way for lots of reasons. The U.S. Supreme Court says states can fine electoral college delegates or electors if they don't go by the will of the people. Evidence of these so-called faithless electors was most recently witnessed in the last presidential election. Five of Hillary Clinton's electors did not vote for her despite the pledge. Two of Donald Trump's electors as I understand it, did not vote for him. Political analyst Terry Madonna says faithless electors have never decided the outcome of an election, but he says efforts continue to reform the electoral college system. I want to shift gears for a minute and just look at a national popular vote. I've heard people argue that this would benefit one political party over another. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's funny, every argument in defense of the Electoral College throughout American history, and there have been many arguments both for and against it, 700 attempts actually to amend or abolish the college over American history, which is far more than for any other part of the Constitution. But every defense of the college over those years has not been really about the principle of why we have an Electoral College or the brilliance of the framers. It's really about the belief that it helps your party right? So the people who've defended the college have always defended it out of a sense that the Electoral College is better for them. And that's stood for both Democrats and Republicans throughout history. So the question is, does it actually help one party or the other? The truth is, in retrospect, you can look at any election and say, yes, the Electoral College was biased in favor of one party or the other because of geographic realities, where people live, how many electoral votes a state has, And so in 2016, for example, obviously it did benefit the Republicans. It's also benefited Democrats in the recent past. I think in 2012 and 2008, it had a slight Democratic lean. Barack Obama obviously won both of those elections quite easily. So you wouldn't have noticed the bias because the bias was pretty small. Even though you can identify a bias in one direction or the other for one party or the other in any given election, over the long term, there is no systemic bias in the Electoral College. No party does systemically better over the decades in either the popular vote or the Electoral College. So some people like to say, oh, the Democrats won the popular vote in six of the last seven elections. That is true. Before that, the Republicans won the popular vote in five of the six elections before that. So 
you pull back the lens wide enough, what you find out is the parties are constantly adapting to realities on the ground. They're changing. When they start getting too few votes, they adapt their platform to appeal to more voters or they shift the voters they're appealing to, as the Republicans and Democrats both did in the late 1960s, as they essentially switched in the South. And what that means, I think, for the future of the country and for the way we pick our president is people should really try to get away from this idea that the system of how we choose the president is inherently beneficial official to Democrats or Republicans. It's possible that in 2020, again, the Electoral College will have a Republican lean. I think there's probably good evidence that it will. But I don't think that's the reason to get rid of it. The reason to get rid of it is because it basically makes the vast majority of Americans' votes irrelevant to the outcome of the election. And that's what harms our democracy more than anything else. Well, when I look at the demographics of how the Electoral College works, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, white people benefit more over people of color. Yes, I think the way the college is designed right now, the way the college runs, I think you're right that states with older, whiter, and more conservative populations benefit from the college's design. That's partly because they also benefit from the Senate, the fact that the Senate gives all states equal votes and smaller states tend to have that type of population. I'll say this, if Republicans continue to follow a Trumpist ideology and continue to zero in on that part of the electorate, right? This is the older, whiter, non-college educated male part of the electorate. Yes, I think you are more likely to see splits between the Electoral College and the popular vote that benefit the Republican, right? Where a Democratic candidate wins the popular vote maybe by significantly more than Hillary Clinton won by in 2016, and yet wins the Electoral College. I think if you look at American political history, you see that no party survives long that doesn't adapt to the realities on the ground. And I think if Republicans keep going that route, I don't think they can keep winning the Electoral College and keep losing the popular vote by the margins they're losing it by. I think they're eventually going to say, look, we have to shift gears here. You point out the changing demographics, right? Look at Texas. Texas is a great example of a state whose demographics are changing toward the Democrats. If Texas were to become a Democratic majority state and were to give its 38 electoral votes to the Democrat, I think Republicans would be running for the exits there and saying, get rid of the Electoral College. And they would find a new way to appeal to a lot of voters they don't currently appeal to. It's so interesting to see the shift in some of these states, Texas being one that seems to be just a natural progression. And then you look at states like Georgia, who get this influx of the entertainment industry. And it's almost like political migration, where people are coming in that are more diverse, that are shifting the color of the state. And you have the GOP just scrambling to try to catch up. I think that's why their policy that they've been putting forth has been so hurtful. It's like their last gasp of air to stay alive, almost. You're exactly right. And this is the struggle that I think the modern GOP is facing, right? After 2012, when Barack Obama won so decisively for a second term, there was this thing that RNC produced, they called it an autopsy, right? And they were looking at why did they lose so badly? Where did they need to shore up their support? And this was something that more centrist members of the party were really behind saying, we need to do more outreach, we need to have a bigger tent, we can't just appeal to whites, older whites, men, we need to figure out how to broaden our message in a way that draws a bigger part of the electorate, or we're just going to be consigned to losing for the next several decades. Now, obviously, 
They didn't do that. By choosing Donald Trump, the party chose the complete opposite tack. And they won. But really, as Steve Bannon, right, Trump's old advisor said, Trump had to, you know, draw an inside straight in order to win in 2016. And he did. So I don't think that's something that can just keep happening. You tell your kids, don't be a bully. You tell your kids, don't be a bigot. You tell your kids, do your homework and be prepared. And then you have this outcome and you have people putting children to bed tonight and they, they're afraid of breakfast. They're afraid of how do I explain this to my children? I have Muslim friends who are texting me tonight saying, should I leave the country? I have uh, families of immigrants that are terrified tonight. This was many things. I, 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 this was a rebellion against the elites. True, it was a complete reinvention of, of, of politics and polls, it's true. But it was also something else. We've talked about race. I mean, we've talked about everything but race tonight. We've talked about income. We've talked about class. We've talked about region. We haven't talked about race. This was a white lash. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president. I just think the realities of the demographics on the ground will not allow it to keep happening, especially if Republicans refuse to expand their tent. But, you know, that's going to require a real crack up in the party, because right now the vast majority of Republicans on the ground support Donald Trump. And as we see in Congress, he has very, very few critics on his side of the aisle. And those who dare to criticize him tend to get shunned. So I do think you're right that these Republicans in states like Georgia and Florida and Texas are really running these rearguard actions, trying to shore up the last little bits of support they have in this dwindling part of the electorate. But I just think eventually they're going to find that they're going to lose and they need to change their strategy. Let's talk about your book. It's entitled Let the People Pick the President. I love that title. First of all, what inspired you to write it? Let's start there. Well, I remember being sort of horrified back in 2000, just like everyone else was. At Me this. too. Wait a minute. You know, yeah. the president can lose the popular vote nationally and still be the president? Like, that just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And I didn't really understand how the Electoral College worked then either. But then obviously things fade away, right? You know, when we're not faced with an imminent crisis, we focus on other things. And so sort of time went by. And then 2016 happens. We all anticipated that Hillary Clinton was going to win, not just the liberal journalists like me, but Donald Trump himself didn't expect to win. Right. So suddenly there's another shock to the system. And I think after that, I realized, okay, this is a really serious problem. It's not just about that the candidate who wins fewer votes can become president. That's a sort of visceral part of it that infuriates all of us. But really, it's about the harm that the college causes to the country every four years, no matter who wins. And that's what we were talking about a few minutes ago with regard to battleground states and safe states, right? That the winner-take-all rule that all but two states use right now basically makes 80-plus percent of Americans irrelevant to the outcome. The Electoral College was established to benefit small states, that's true. But we're not challenging the Electoral College, we're challenging winner-take-all, the system the states use to allocate their Electoral College votes. And winner-take-all benefits not small states, but battleground states. States where the outcome is up for grabs in every election cycle. States like Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan. These are not small states. They are not the states the framers were thinking of when they set up the Electoral College. They are instead the states that happen to be in the middle of the political spectrum. 
So I thought, all right, if this is what the Electoral College is doing, even when the winner of the college and the popular vote are lined up, that's something that we need to change. And so I thought, why not write a book about it? You know, I think it was Toni Morrison said, write the book that you want to read. So I said, okay, that's the book I want to read. I couldn't believe that there was no really general interest book arguing for the popular vote out there. The ones that I read were excellent books, but they were largely for political scientists or for historians. And I wanted to write a book that could reach a lot of Americans where they live and say, hey, you know, this system that we use to pick our leader, (laughs) the oldest continuously functioning representative democracy in the world, (laughs) it's actually really bad. It's really broken. And I think you agree with me in your heart, even if you don't think you do, because just imagine if your candidate were to win the popular vote and lose the presidency. Donald Trump himself tweets, right? The Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy. Why did he tweet that? He tweeted that on election night 2012. He tweeted that because he thought that Mitt Romney might win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College to Barack Obama. And I was just saying, amen, brother. Like, (laughs) I've had that now happen twice to my candidate in the last 20 years, as have tens of millions of Americans. I think people really feel like an insult at this in a way that a lot of electoral issues, I think, feel dry and technical to people. This decision about how we choose our leader is really central to who we are as a people. And I think people understand how twisted and unfair it is right now. And I think that extends to both parties when they even think they might face the short end of the stick. It just goes against everything that we associate with winning, right? In your book, you talk about the effect that Black Americans and women getting voting rights had on the Electoral College. Will you walk us through that? Sure. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think you can't separate the Electoral College from America's long history of exclusion and discrimination in voting and representation. Ultimately, they decide that the president has to be elected in some kind of national fashion. Well, in the middle of this debate... James Madison, who's the father of the Constitution, says the fittest thing, that's the word he uses, would be for the people to elect the president. A number of other delegates say the same thing. But then Madison goes on to say there's a huge problem with that. He says that you can't have the people elect the president because the southern states could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. Well, of course, when he says Negroes, what he means is the slaves. So when you look at American history, you're seeing this arc of increasing democratization. You started with a country that was founded on this principle of universal human equality, right? That is this really audacious idea that no one had ever dared adopt before. And here these like ruffians who had escaped across the sea from King George were declaring their independence and saying we're all equal, right? These are incredible ideas. And yet the country that they founded doesn't abide by them at all. It tolerates slavery. Women don't have a vote. Women aren't treated as fully human. Native Americans are ignored, but they're not being killed. Even poor whites 
are not given the vote in most states. So the country as it was founded didn't come close to adhering to the values that were espoused in the Declaration of Independence. And yet nevertheless, what we've seen happen over the course of our history is this slow but sure expansion of the franchise, expansion of the right to vote and of the inclusion of the populace in our democracy. And that begins with removing property qualifications for being able to vote. That allows poor whites to be part of our electorate. Then we have the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments that come out of that, and that allows Black people to be citizens and to vote. And then we have, in the progressive era, you have women's suffrage, and suddenly half the adult population in America is given the right to vote. I mean, some of them had started getting it in the States anyway, but it doesn't become part of the Constitution until the early 20th century. And then you have the one-person, one-vote rulings in the Supreme Court, which, again, reconfigured our whole idea of representative democracy. The Electoral College is really the last point, I think, on that arc. It's the last part of the Constitution that we can do anything about that really embodies that exclusionary approach that the founders took. And really going to a popular vote would vindicate the more egalitarian ideal that is written into the Declaration of Independence. So for me, what Black people and what women in particular experienced, both first being excluded and then being included, is part of this essential arc that's bending toward more democracy. It just feels like it's a system designed to keep the people in power right where they are. It almost feels like it is the exact opposite of a democratic institution. And I'm wondering, do other democracies have similar systems? Nobody has an electoral college like this. No modern democracy has anything like the electoral college. Different countries have different ways of electing leaders, and they have their own problems. But this is a really big one here. And you asked specifically about Black Americans and women, and I think there's another point there that's really important, which is that the way the electoral college is designed, the number of electors that a state gets is based on its total population, not on its voting population, right? So a state has no incentive to expand its electorate to include everybody. So it took, what, 150 years from the founding to give women the vote. Imagine if we had had a popular vote. States would have a much bigger incentive to give women the vote because they would say, wait a minute, half of our population can't vote. And if they could, we would have more influence in the outcome of the election. But they don't have that incentive. It was the same for Blacks and is the same for every element of expansion has had to go against the incentives that the Electoral College creates. So you said before there were how many attempts to get rid of the Electoral College? More than 700 by today. Isn't that astonishing? That is really astonishing. I mean, if that many people have not succeeded, how do we change it? I won't go into the story, but if you read my book, Chapter 5 details the attempt that got closer than any other to abolishing the college and adopting a constitutional amendment that installed a popular vote. The story, it happened in the late 1960s and 1970, and it's an amazing tale of of bipartisan agreement. More than 80% of Americans were in favor of a popular vote. You had top-ranking Republicans, including President Nixon, were on board. It was just so painfully close, and then it failed. And the reason it failed, by the way, was because of a filibuster by three Southern segregationists, Strom Thurmond being one of them. So I think you really see that sort of racial element of exclusion popping Mm -hmm. up once again, as it always does throughout our history. But given that there have been so many attempts and that they've all failed, I think we have this other approach, which I write about at length in the book, and that's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. 
As a refresher, this movement wanting to allow some states to band together to work around the Electoral College. If enough join, all of the electoral votes would automatically go to the national popular vote winner in presidential elections. It takes 270 electoral votes to win the White House, so they're working to get enough states on board to trigger the win. Here's a look at the areas involved after the latest legislative sessions. It's been enacted into law in 14 states and Washington, D.C. The total is 189 electoral votes, which is 81 short of that needed total. What this does is it's actually pretty ingenious. It is a way of electing the president by a popular vote without abolishing the Electoral College. I know the title of my book, the subtitle is The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. And the publisher wanted that on there, right? Because <laughs> I think this is sort of the sentiment of the day is about abolishing and about breaking down old systems that don't work and building right. new ones. And I totally get that. And I agree with it. And I do think in the end, I would personally prefer an amendment to the Constitution just to make this simple. But Given that I think that's very unlikely today, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is actually an ingenious and very sort of elegant way to get there through a different mechanism. Let me just explain how it works. So an interstate compact is basically a contract among states to do something. There might be about agreements over water rights for a body of water that crosses the state line or creating an interstate lottery commission, for example. And the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is just another agreement like that. And what the states who join it agree to do is to award all of their electors, not to the winner of their statewide vote. Remember I said that's how 48 yeah. states out of 50 do it, is they give all their electors to the winner of statewide vote. It's to give it to the winner of the national popular vote. So whichever candidate wins the most votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia gets that state's electors. And when states representing a majority of electors, 270, join this compact, that automatically means the candidate who wins the most votes in the country becomes president. It's actually quite clever and elegant, as I say, and it's more than two thirds of the way to taking effect. It doesn't take effect, by the way, until you have states joining that represent a majority of electors. So even though it has 15 member states right now, plus DC, they represent 196 electors together. So there's still 74 short. So those states are still awarding their electors as they have been all along, which is to the winner of their statewide vote. But if you get up to 270, suddenly all of those states will begin awarding their electors to the national popular vote winner. And then you have a president who is elected by the majority of the people every time. And I think that's a huge benefit, as we say, to our politics, to our policies, to our governance, to the way we see each other, and just to political involvement generally. I think more people, when they know their vote counts, to the outcome, they will come out to vote more. We see it happen every year. So it's a brilliant design. It was created by a computer scientist named John Koza about 15 years ago. It's been slowly picking up state support ever since. In fact, it's had a lot of interest in Republican-led states too, not just Democratic-led states. Unfortunately, so far, only Democratic-led states have passed it. So I think for it to really be seen as a legitimate change in our system, it's going to need to have support from both sides of the aisle. So those that are in support of keeping the Electoral College, what is their reasoning behind keeping it? Well, it's funny. I mean, when I was researching this book and talking to people all the time and reading articles in defense of the college and criticizing the college, you see the same arguments come up again and again and again. And one of my colleagues at the Times, Jamel Bowie, who's one of our just superb columnists, I think he had a brilliant term for these. He called them folk civics. So it's sort of like the folk tales we tell about our American political reality and political history, but it doesn't make them true. 
So this idea, you know, you quoted it a little while ago, this idea that the big cities and the big states will dominate the outcome of any popular vote election. It's just simply not true as a matter of math. The idea that small states are protected by the Electoral College, also not true for the reason that we talked about, which is all small states except for one are safe states. So the candidates don't care about them. They don't care about the small states. They don't care about the medium-sized states. They don't care about the big states. The only states they care about are Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Yep. Florida, Arizona, maybe North Carolina this year. And that's just random chance of states that happen to be so closely divided that going into one of those states and campaigning to win votes could actually move all of those states electors from one camp to the other. And so it's really worth the candidates time to like focus on their interests and basically kiss up to them. And that's not something we want to see in a leader who has to represent the entire country. So the small state argument is a very common one. The big city argument is a very common one. Another one is this was a brilliant design that the framers came up with, and it's a central part of our republic. Right. It's just not true. When you look at how they came up with it, they literally cobbled it together in the last days of the convention in a side room. It was longer than any other provision in the Constitution. James Madison admitted afterward, he was like, yeah, we were kind of Russian at that point. They didn't design something that they thought was for the ages, they designed something because they had to get the Constitution done. And they had right. to get it sent out to the states to get ratified because they needed to create a country fast. And they were just tired. And they knew that George Washington was going to be president no matter what. So the stakes were sort of low. So it wasn't some brilliant design. It was really just what they did in the moment to get through to the end of the convention. I think when people start to understand the actual history behind the college, why it was designed, how it functioned in the early days and how it works today, I think it's really hard to come up with any defense of it that carries water today. I think my final question is, do you see success on the horizon? I mean, is it likely to be solved in our lifetimes? I'm an optimist, so I'm going to say yes. And the reason I say yes is because, first of all, I think if we ever saw an election split in the other direction, meaning that the Democrat won the Electoral College while the Republican won the popular vote, we would be done with the Electoral College tomorrow. <laughs> and that's because nobody wants that outcome. Even people who claim they would be fine with it, they would not be okay with it if it happened. So if you had that split election in the other direction, it would be done. But even still, let's say that doesn't happen. I don't think that a modern democracy like this one can tolerate much longer a minority rule president. I just don't think it can happen. I think if President Trump wins again in November while losing the popular vote and that Republicans sort of figure out, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lock in our minority rule for the foreseeable future because it's the only way we know how to win and we're too either scared or lazy or whatever it is to try to develop a different strategy for winning voters. I think you're going to see a sort of uprising and pushback that we've never seen before. And I just don't think the country is going to be able to function as it currently does with a perpetually minority president. That said, it's going to take a lot to get there. I mean, there definitely need to be some purple or red states that adopt this compact to get to 270. And will they do it? I don't know. And part of the reason for writing this book is to try to educate people on how harmful the Electoral College is to their interest, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans just living in America and wanting their president to represent their interests. And I think when more and more people realize that, I think then we have a public uprising that is sustained enough and serious enough to make their lawmakers listen and to change the way we elect the president. Well, the book is called Let the People Pick the President. My guest today was Jesse Wegman, and I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. When people voted, they were actually voting for electors, who are basically a bunch of locally appointed representatives who then vote on your behalf, which again makes no sense to me. 
Do you understand how weird that is? That's like going to a deli, but for some reason you can't order for yourself. You're just there at the counter like, hey, uh, can I have a sandwich? And then there's some guy who's like, whoa, 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 I got this. Hey, can he have a sandwich? <laughs> it's a bizarre, bizarre twist on an already bizarre system because there are two ways to pick a president. There's giving it to the person with the most votes, commonly known as democracy. And then there's how America does it. We're the only democracy in the world that doesn't count the popular vote. This is the second time in 16 years that the person coming into the White House has lost the popular vote. Under the Electoral College system, a candidate who wins the most votes gets all of that state's electoral votes. A candidate can win millions of individual votes in a state like Florida and still lose all that state's electoral votes because they lost the popular vote there. Now, if that sounded confusing, that's because it is. The person with more votes should win. This is a weird system because no other country decides elections this way. It's even weird in America, you understand that? You don't elect mayors like this in America. You don't elect governors like this. You don't even elect idols like this. The presidency is the only office where for some reason you don't trust the popular votes. And the, by the way, it's not about Trump. You know this system is broken because the person with more votes lost in two of the last five elections. That's 40%. 40%. If a plumber told me that every time I flushed my toilet, there'd be a 40% chance it would spray back at me, I'd be like, maybe I need a new toilet. But America's like, I've had this toilet for 200 years. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Trump! Trump! Oh, oh, that was horrible. One person, one vote. Is there anything more fundamental than that? Is there any place where we should be more equal than in determining who will lead our country? More than ever, we live in a time when racial justice and fundamental issues of equality are burning in the souls of Americans, and yet the very institutions which could make that happen in our laws are designed to make sure it never does. You've got homework. If you live in a state which has not joined the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, you need to get loud. Your state reps are your neighbors. They live in your communities. And it's time they started hearing from you about this. Show up at their town halls, call their offices every week. If they don't get on board, elect somebody who will. Everybody's vote matters, or nobody's vote matters. It's that simple. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.